Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is on a mission to find, share, and celebrate the best audio stories in the world. We do that via radio and podcast, on our website, at our annual Third Coast conference, and at live listening events. How do we find them all, you might ask? Well, each year, we host an international competition to honor all the wonderful stories our medium has to offer and the talented producers who make them. This year, we received close to 500 entries from 22 different countries, including Portugal, Argentina, New Zealand, and Scotland. But that was just the beginning. Then it was up to the judges, themselves highly accomplished radio makers, to do the near-impossible job of choosing the 11 top award winners. On Best of the Best, we bring you the winning stories from the 2019 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition and a look behind the scenes with the producers who make this remarkable work. This hour, stories of investigation, unexplained death in Illinois prisons, a dangerous change in British Columbia's medical system, and a search for the hard-to-find but fabulous 1999 movie, Punks. Stay with us. The Skylarking Award recognizes stories that are just out for the fun of it. These stories aren't inquiries of hard-hitting social or political issues. Instead, they take a playful approach or tackle a lighter topic. What most listeners don't realize, however, is that they take just as much time, effort, and craft to make, but they're rarely recognized. At Third Coast, nothing delights us more than listening to these passion projects, fueled by love and often humor. This year, the Skylarking Award went to the podcast Nancy for a mystery about a man named Kai, a movie named Punks, and a madcap adventure to reunite the two. Okay, Kai. Hey, Kai. Hi. Colleague at WNYC. Mwah. Tell us this story. Well, I sat down one day. Me and my boyfriend had a, f- a new friend who was over our house, you know, and he's in his early 20s, and he is sort of newly gay. 
and he's a person of color, and he was like, oh, let's watch a movie. And we were like, oh, yeah, there's all these gay movies you need to be educated on that he didn't know about. <laughs> we started talking about this, you know, the gay 90s, and he's like, what's that? What's that? What's that? And we were like, young man, <laughs> sit down. We are going to show you. And you know where you need to start, particularly as a young man of color, you need to see punks. And I go to the television, and we've got all these apps and all of these streaming services, and I thought, certainly, I can just pull up any of these movies. And I couldn't find Punks anywhere. I couldn't find it. Punks was a movie made by a black gay man, full of black gay people, about being black and gay and in love and the foibles thereof. Sisters! This is the trailer for Punks, and I've now watched it online about seven times. Well, if upon meeting me, a man is not instantly bowled over by my beauty, and he's clearly heterosexual. And as trailers go, it gives very little plot away. Actually, no plot. From what I can gather, it involves some drama with drag queens and photography and modeling and other things. Uh, Kathy, this is not helpful. I know. Okay, Kai, can you help us out here? Like, what is punks about? You know, here's the thing. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I do not, I haven't, so I was, I, this is sadly a great many years ago in my life. Uh, and I have, it's one of those things where I have an emotional memory of it more than I do a factual memory of it, right? And so basically I remember it as, you know, sex in the city with black gay men. And there's one of each, you know, there's like the sassy queen, there's the hot muscle boy, there's the like butch guy, you know, there's four of them. And they're best friends, and they're in Los Angeles, and they are sorting out life and love. And I'm pretty sure one of them starts dating a straight boy, I want to say. Um, and hilarity ensues from there. But I honestly cannot tell you what it was about. When I was a young gay in my 20s, I had come out, I lived in Washington, D.C., and I was diving it. I mean, I dove in headfirst to being gay. I was like, I'm going to figure out how to be gay. This is going to be fun. This is going to be wonderful. I moved to a gay neighborhood. It was a largely white gay neighborhood. Uh, I became a professional homosexual. I went to work for a gay newspaper. Like, And I was in it. I was loving it. And sort of at the peak of that, this thing started where there, all these movies started coming out that were like romantic comedies about gays. And they were like being played in theaters. To Howard Brackett from Greenleaf, Indiana. A bombshell is about to drop. And he's gay. And I was loving that. And then I got to a point where I looked up and I was like, these movies, while wonderful, I mean, are just relentlessly white. Just relentlessly white. I look like a straight man to you. I'd need to meet him before I dare subject him to my gaydar. I mean, they're not just any old white, but, you know, I mean... Just like the white boy. Trick, a story about two guys trying to make it in the big city. And uh, and it just started to turn for me. What was wonderful became really alienating. And um, in the middle of that, along comes punks. And it just, it changed a lot for me about my relationship to the gay community at that time. My most striking memory of punks is that when it played again, I lived in D.C., which, like, was this really, you know, I mean, it was a big gay town in the 90s. Still is, but really was then. But quite, quite segregated. You know, I mean, there was, like, the black gay community and the white gay community. And then when punks came out and it was 
at the Gay Film Festival that year. And again, I just have an emotional memory of this room full of this just rainbow of Black queer people, you know, um, of classes and styles and walks of life. And we were all there. So that night when you couldn't find punks with your friend. I got alarmed. You know, that this history has disappeared. Like, I literally blurted out, they're erasing us. Our, the history, our history is being taken off of the internet. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that meant intellectually, but I immediately was convinced there was some kind of conspiracy. And then I assumed it was the economy of it, you know, that, like, we didn't register meaningfully enough to, like, count to get streamed somewhere, you know? Like, who cares about this movie? You guys aren't a market, and so no one did the thing you gotta do to serve this market. Tobin, when Kai told us this, I was like, we've gotta figure this out. Uh Uh-huh. I think I see where you're going. We're on the same wavelength. Uh Uh-huh. Kathy, you love to dig into the corners of the internet, (laughs) get on your hands and knees and do an army crawl under the barbed wire of improbability as you search after the golden idol of finding the thing you're looking for. I've gotten lost in this metaphor. (laughs) You love a hunt. All of those things are true. (laughs) And if something important to me, like say Xena, disappeared... You better believe I'd go out there and I would find that you thing. You would freak the hell out and you would find it. Oh, Kai, I'm going to find this movie. I have nothing but faith. I have nothing but faith. All right, so here's some preliminary intel. Punks was written and directed by Patrick Ian e. Polk. You may know him as the guy who created Noah's Ark, which is like this black gay L word. Anyway, Punks was produced by Kenneth Babyface Edmonds. Like the Babyface? Like, uh, every time I close <laughs> my eyes. That Babyface? Yes, that Babyface. And fun fact, Mariah Carey and Kenny G are both on that song. Oh my god, it's like the 90s in a blender. Okay, anyway, I started by checking all the streaming sites. Not that I didn't believe Kai, but you know, we just, we gotta check. I even checked some illegal streaming sites and there was nothing. Then I scanned Amazon and eBay and Craigslist to see if anyone was selling a copy. Nobody was. I then emailed film festivals that screened punks at some point to see if they kept a copy. And they did not. What about like ye old video store? Hello, video tech. Video around. Cinefile video can help you. I'm wondering if you have this movie called Punks available. No, I'm not seeing it. I'm so sorry. Nah, yeah, we don't carry it. Uh, Next, I turned to libraries, and I mean all kinds of libraries. GLBT Historical Society Archives. Hi, Patricia. My name is Kathy, and I am looking for a movie. reference, how can I help you? Library of Congress. Well, we don't have it. We have three things. UCLA. Yeah, not at all, so... And USC's One Archive. Uh, Was it Urban World Films? Does that... Oh, yes. Uh, I think he was, they were the distributor. Okay, then we do have it. <gasps> you have it? Yeah. Is it possible to check it out or like... No, you can come here and view it. All of our... None, we're a non-lending library. I see. Okay. Yeah. How would I get a copy of that? I wonder... Let's say... Hold on one second. Let me go a little deeper here. Here's the filmmaker. 
da, 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 da. Uh, there's his personal website. Oh, no, his personal website does not exist anymore. Poor dude. Where is he? Oh, he's on Instagram. Oh, is this Patrick Gampolk you're talking about? Yeah, I would try contacting. Go on Instagram and send him a message. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm at the One Archive at USC in Los Angeles. It's a bright two-story building with stacks and stacks of LGBTQ materials. And Mike, the archivist, takes a break from tending the front desk to take me upstairs into a room that looks like a storage closet. 3146, and we're being, we're incredibly lucky today. Oh my God, here we go. Oh my God. Oh my God. I am holding a VHS of punks in my hand right now. You did it. You found punks. Well, there's no way for me to borrow this. There is no way for you to borrow this, unfortunately. Sorry. So I failed, but at least I got to watch the movie at the library. Oh, so you can at least answer what Punks is about. I can. Punks is about a group of friends. There's Marcus, Hill, Dante, and Chris. Okay. Marcus is a photographer. He's a really sweet guy who becomes friends with his new neighbor, Darby, (laughs) who is straight. But, you know, there's like a crush situation. It's cute. And Hill is single again after his boyfriend cheats on him. So he's sort of sleeping around. Okay. Dante is the playboy of the group. And Chris does these amazing drag shows as Crystal, the head of ensemble called The Sisters. Ah. And they do performances only to Sister Sledge songs. And now the trailer makes sense. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. There's a lot happening in punks. And I want to say, like, I think the movie holds up. I mean, it's still a romantic comedy, so it's got all, like, the the awkward romantic comedy vibes, like, you know, the music. I love a harmony that's just up a third. I don't know what that means. It's a very 90s thing that's like, just up here. (laughs) That's lovely, Tobin. Thank you. Okay, but, like, in the world of rom-coms, I think Punks is a solid film. And the fact that it's disappeared from the world is pretty unfair, given that all the other rom-coms in the world get to survive, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, why not Punks? Right, and so I'm guessing maybe Patrick Ian Polk has the answer to that. So, did you find him? Okay, so... Patrick is not the easiest person to find in the world. He's very busy being a writer on TV shows like Being Mary Jane. Mm -hmm. So, like, he's got stuff to do. Yeah, but, like, isn't his info a Google search away? No. (laughs) No, Tobin. That's not how that works. I had to email a few different companies to see if anybody had his contact info. They did not. So, finally, I did resort to sending him a message on Instagram, like that librarian suggested. So what happened? He didn't get back to me. (laughs) But I did find an article written about him from a couple years ago during the Oscar So White backlash. Mm. So I reached out to the reporter who wrote the article. His name is Travel Anderson. And he passed along Patrick's email address. (laughs) So I then sent over a carefully crafted, non-stocky email. And finally... I'm Patrick Ian Polk. I'm a filmmaker, writer, director. So it's taken me 
a while to find you, but I found you, and I pulled you into the studio with me because I've got some questions for you. Okay. Okay, so just to start, how did punks come about, and how did Babyface get involved? So punks was my first film. I was hired by um, Babyface and his wife, Tracy Edmonds, at their production company. But I was also quietly kind of writing and working on my own stuff. So this is the late 90s, and at some point, Patrick got the opportunity to pass along the script for Punks to Babyface and Tracy. So I gave them the script, and they went off on holiday, and I thought, I kept thinking, they're going to read the script, and they're going to say no, because it's, you know, they're going to, it's just, no, this is never going to happen. Yeah. But they came back, and they said that over the course of this holiday vacation on this boat, the script had changed hands. Everyone had read the script. The grandmother, the aunt, the cousin, the brother, the whole family had the script, and they loved it. They thought it was just the funniest thing, so they were in. So we shot the film. Uh, they financed the film, and, uh, you know, 35-millimeter film. And then we uh, submitted to Sundance, and we got in. Uh, and so all the gay film festivals wanted the film. We opened and closed almost every film festival we were in. So it was, like, everywhere. I went all over the world. So that's when Kai saw it, when it was this celebrated gay film. It won a few awards, like at L.A. Outfest and the Black Reel Awards. But then, for reasons I will get into later, the film pulled a disappearing act. Ooh, suspense. So so the film right now is sort of in a limbo where... It, the film is in a vault. In a vault. <laughs> Just sitting in a vault. And do you personally have a copy of, of Punks? I do have a copy, yeah. What are the chances that I can borrow a copy from you? <laughs> uh, I'll have to figure out how to yeah, make that happen. I can, I'll, fi- I'll figure it out. It's not going to be necessarily the easiest thing to do. Because, really? Well, the copy that I have, I have like a film copy. Oh. Like a big, heavy I see. film copy. But I'll, I'll figure it out. We can make, we can definitely make it happen. So, did we get a copy for Kai? After we talked, I felt like Patrick was starting to ghost me a little bit. But also, he's busy being a writer and producer, and I'm just here bugging him about this old film. I feel like you are you are preparing me for disappointment, like you didn't get a copy from him. Well... Hi, Rachel. Kathy. Nice to meet you. I meet up with Rachel, Patrick's assistant, at this incredible building in L.A. This looks like a hotel. There is a William Randolph Hearst suite from when he had a suite here. Okay, so now you have to bear with me while I pick through his keys. All right. Sounds good. In from Patrick's storage room, Rachel pulls out... It's not not heavy. ...something that was apparently very heavy. The master film copy of... Punks. (gasps) Punks. You did it. You found Punks. Congratulations. Thank you, Tobin. This means that Kai is about to see Punks for the first time in almost two decades. We tell him to meet us at this theater in the East Village called Anthology. I'm a little nervous, if the truth is told. It's a trip to my past. Like, I don't know. What if it sucks? (laughs) I don't think it's gonna suck. <laughs> I was like, why did I, why was I so into that? I think it's kind of gangster that you guys found the original. Truly, when we started this, I was like, oh, well, she's gonna find, like, 20 promotional DVDs or something. <laughs> but truly, we are in a rented theater with the one 35-millimeter <laughs> copy. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, my God, this is so exciting. <laughs> 
Oh, please don't suck. <laughs> For the next hour and a half, whenever I look over at Kai, he is nothing but delighted. Yes. It's the sex in the city, but black and gay. He's telling us little tidbits about the film. I feel like there was a lot of like photographer themes, and I think it's just an excuse to have like half naked people. And just loving it. A hand job. Get out of here. The music is amazing. There's just sister sledge hit after sister sledge hit. After Sister Sledge hit. Oh, wait. Did he not pay for any of this music? Wait, is that the key to what happened to punks? Yeah, so this is what Patrick told me. You know, it was a gay black film, and we're talking about the year 2000. I mean, you know how kind of it's still kind of taboo in certain things in, in pop culture, but back then, it, it was a different time. Um, so no major distributors made offers on the film. We got no sort of major offers. Ended up signing a distribution deal with a small black distributor. We found out that the distributor did not pay for the music clearances for the Sister Sledge music, the seven songs that we used. And like the the producers who paid for the film are like, we're not going to put any money, to, you know. And then time goes on and then you know, people forget, and then you just move on and do other things. I called the founder of Urban Wolf Films, they were the distributor, and he said that those music rights would have cost millions of dollars, and they just couldn't afford it. So the film never got real distribution. Oh my God, that's so frustrating. I know. It's a nice soundtrack, though. Quick reactions. My thoughts are, this is a really funny movie. This is a very, very funny movie, and I'm glad that it is still a very, very funny movie. This is a movie full of really good-looking people. True. Oh, yes. And, and, I, <laughs> and, and it's also, like, it still resonates with me as a unique thing. It's as For me personally, I'm not even talking about, like, in the world and what's necessary and, be, and what we should have out there. I'm just talking about for Kai Wright personally watching it still resonated with me emotionally as something I need to see and don't. Mm-hmm. That, like, mm-hmm. there were all of these black gay men who were in community and who I could who I could relate to, who live lives like I lead my life, you know? I mean, with less attractiveness and, you know, not <laughs> quite as fabulous, but, like, that are just doing normal stuff and falling in love and having fights and being hoes when they feel like it mm-hmm. and sometimes being positive, you know? And, like, none of it being a thing and that still hit me as something, as a breath of fresh air, as something I needed to see on a screen in 2018. Hmm. Um, I'll tell you what stuck out to me. For like 0.5 seconds, I was annoyed with the fact that the lead was so attractive and everyone was treating him like he was a dumpy nerd. And then it was like, (laughs) but wait, this gets to be problematic in the same way that all rom-coms are problematic. (laughs) Right, right. That's exactly it. It gets to be problematic. It's the genre of rom-coms has many built-in problems, and that is one of them. That's right. Yeah. That's great. So how do you feel now knowing that the real reason why punks isn't around anymore is kind of silly? It has to do with music rights. I'm trying to figure out how to feel about it because... (laughs) 
on one hand, I feel away because I'm like, really, girl? Like, you can't, I mean, come on. Like, that was the long range vision here was built in failure, you know? And I, so I feel that way about it, to be honest. But then I also am like, you know, I'm thinking back to that era, I'm thinking back to that time. And, like, the way, like, we have to just make our own stuff, you know? And I have friends who have made movies. They didn't think about those kind of things, maybe. Maybe they did. I don't know. But, you know, uh, also, like, it's kind of punk, as it were, (laughs) Um, that they were just like, look, we're making the movie, and we're going to take these tracks, and that's what's going to be great. (laughs) One would say too great. (laughs) (laughs) That was Punks, produced by Kathy Tu with Tobin Lowe and Matt Collette for the podcast Nancy from WNYC Studios. It was edited by Jenny Lawton, sound designed by Jeremy Bloom, and executive produced by Paula Schumann. You're listening to Best of the Best. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition, made possible with generous support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation. Hear all of this year's winners, along with a treasure trove of other great stories from around the world anytime at thirdcoastfestival.org and on our podcast, ReSound. Coming up after the break, mysterious deaths in the Illinois prison system. No records were kept and no information was released until now. Stay with us. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. Best of the Best showcases the winners of our annual Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Today, we're listening to three stories that each highlight careful investigative work. For the last year, WBEZ reporter Shannon Heffernan has been trying to figure out how and why people die in Illinois prisons. But after looking into it, she found that the state wasn't keeping even basic records. That meant that sometimes the prisoners' own families couldn't learn the simplest details about the death of their loved ones. Here's the winner of the 2019 Best News Feature Award, Death in Illinois Prisons. He didn't have the death penalty, but that's what he got. 
Sheila Fain's son Desmond died when he was just 30 years old. He had a heart condition since he was little, but as long as it was managed, he was okay. So when he died in prison, Sheila wanted to know what went wrong. I called, and they would tell me that they couldn't talk to me. Uh, one while, the nurse was willing to talk to me. Then all of a sudden, I called her back. She couldn't talk to me. She was still trying to get details about her son's death when, about a year and a half later, she got a call about Earl. Earl was her nephew, but she'd raised him alongside Desmond like a son. The caller told her that Earl had now died in prison. I asked, was she effing serious? I mean, that's the only thing you can say, you're effing serious when you'd have been through this before. Earl was just 26 years old and had always seemed healthy. Earl was in prison for murder and had a long sentence. Desmond was there for a gun crime, and she'd expected him home again one day. Both deaths were hard, not only because of the loss, but because she couldn't get information about what exactly happened. Not having information is like not having a closure. For several months, I've been trying to track how and why people in Illinois prisons are dying. I got a list from the Department of Corrections with 166 deaths in the last two years. But about half of them have no cause of death listed, including Earl, the nephew Sheila raised. I used an open records law to request info about Earl's death. But the department said they didn't have the records. No medical examiner's report, not even a death certificate. Sheila didn't have very much info on Earl either. I'll come back to Earl. But first, Sheila did have some information on her son, Desmond. And I thought documents I had might be able to fill out the picture. But I wasn't sure, so I drove to see her in Freeport, Illinois. Hi, I'm Shannon. Six other family members showed up. Sheila said she wanted them there in case things got emotional. We all piled in the living room together. Sheila showed me a T-shirt she made. I love this one right here in the middle. That's why I put it in the middle. The shirt is a collage of three different photos of Desmond, showing his three different sides. This is, this is, this is what you call when him was happy. To me, this is his more serious side. You guys laughing because did he always have a serious face on? Is that The difference between the pictures must be something only a mother can see. His happy face and his serious face look the same to me. But he, when, he, when he cracked the joke, he still was serious about it. Do you have any pictures of him smiling? There he is, right there. That's the only one. That's probably his last smile. When he was like eight? <laughs> so Sheila was wearing this T-shirt one day at the restaurant where she works. And this guy came in to eat. And he looked up and he said, who is that? I said, that's my son. He said, I was locked up with him when that happened. I was like, you was? I said, do you know anything? If he knew something, he didn't say. But other people who were in the prison did reach out. One wrote Sheila a letter. She has her daughter read it to me. I'm a friend of Desi's. He always told me things. He was not getting the proper medical help he needed by the doctors at Sheridan. He filed grievance to know. Letter says basically that the prison let him die. Peace be with you, Desi, my friend. This information matched Sheila's suspicions. But it wasn't proof. It wasn't details. And that's what Sheila wanted. She shows me a binder she has of the information she's gathered. But it's it's so much crossed out. I... You can't make heads or tails of it. You can't. It's difficult to follow some of the records with redactions, but combined with other paperwork, it creates a timeline, a timeline that matches with the record I have. So it's patient number two. He's not named, so I'm not sure it's him, but it really it really sounds like him when I'm reading it. He was about 30 years old. This record is from a court report. It was recently filed in a lawsuit over prison health care. It was written by an independent medical expert who reviewed the prison's health care system after being appointed by a federal judge as part of the lawsuit. He examined 33 different prison deaths, then wrote detailed reports about what happened for each one. The cases are all anonymous, but one of them, 
patient number two. The details match with Desmond perfectly. See the death date here? That is him. The date he died, the prison he was in, his heart condition, everything. You can put a name there. It's Desmond Lee Fang. You can put a name there. There's no way you know that this is... This Sheila scans the report quickly, trying to take it all in, and then goes through more slowly, sentence by sentence. The report describes what happened to Desmond, showing error after error after error being made by healthcare staff. For example, Desmond was preparing for a surgery when he was sent to prison. A letter from his doctor was in the prison medical record, but the doctor was never contacted and the surgery was never done. The prison also gave him a medication that can have severe side effects given his condition. And the report says there's no clear reason for even prescribing it. The report says the prescription may have caused or at least contributed to his death. After reviewing the case, the medical expert determined Desmond's death was preventable. He didn't get the death sentence, but in the long run, they gave him the death sentence. So... Over his six months of incarceration, they identified 10 different times they made errors. If one person dropped a ball and somebody pick it up, that's different. But you kept on, you continued to keep on dropping the ball, showing and telling me as a mother that my child life did not matter. Not what they wanted from me. Yeah, you, you got his life. <laughs> you took my son away from not only my, for me, you took his brothers and sisters, you took it from his family. You have people every day saying they miss my son. You have people on holidays. We can't spend them on holidays with him. We can't see him on his birthday. We can't see him no more. Yeah, he did a crime, but he was paying for his crime. I don't know what the future would have helped from him, but you, you, you took that from him. You took it from us. The independent expert found that a third of the deaths he examined were preventable, just like Desmond's, and noted that medical staff made egregious errors, some so egregious the report says it would typically result in a doctor needing to be evaluated and possibly have their license sanctioned. That report is part of a lawsuit brought by the ACLU of Illinois and Uptown People's Law Center, alleging health care in the state's prisons is so bad it violates the Constitution. As for Earl, the nephew who Sheila raised, I was able to confirm with the coroner that he died at age 26 of pneumonia. That matches with what the hospital told Sheila. But as of now, we don't know much more. We don't know if his case was preventable, like his cousin's. We have made multiple requests over months and months to talk to anyone in the Illinois Department of Corrections about how they track deaths, how they investigate if something went wrong. But the department refused all our requests for interviews. That was death in Illinois prisons. He didn't have the death penalty, but that's what he got. Produced by Shannon Heffernan and edited by Rob Wildeboer for WBEZ in Chicago. It won the 2019 Best News Feature Award. Here's what Shannon had to say when she came on stage at our award ceremony in Chicago. When I reached out to Sheila, she had no reason to trust me. But she invited me to come to her home and to meet her family. At one point, when the conversation became difficult, I turned off the recorder and I asked Sheila if she was sure she wanted to keep going. And Sheila said that she needed the people of Illinois to know what they had done. That is an act of profound generosity and an act of profound bravery. Desmond and Earl's voices are not in this piece. And I wish more, more than anything they could have been. 
I hope in some tiny way this piece honored them. Our judges said of this story, what Shannon Heffernan managed to do in just six minutes is nothing short of remarkable. She used every second available to bring depth, nuance, momentum, investigative journalism, systems thinking, and humanity into the story. Heffernan's reporting on this high-stakes issue is likely to result in tangible systemic changes, ones that will impact countless individuals far beyond the Fain family. Speaking of impact, our next story had repercussions that were felt far and wide, a perfect example of journalism that led to change. And for this reason, our judges chose it to win the 2019 Radio Impact Award. Crackdown is an investigative podcast about the drug war, covered by drug users as war correspondents. This episode, called Change Intolerance, follows events that began in 2014 when the Canadian province of British Columbia switched nearly 15,000 methadone patients to a new formulation called methadose. Host Garth Mullins, who's also a methadone patient, investigates what happened after the switch. Um, can you tell us, like, your name and your uh, official position here? Sure. Um, my name's Laura Shaver. I am the vice president here at Vandu, which is Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, um, as well as the president of BCA Palm, which is British Columbia Association of People on Methadone. So we're here to talk a little bit about um, as of, it was supposed to be November 1st, but now it will be February 1st. Um, there is going to be a new methadone coming. Um, it's As of right now, it's called methadose. Um, one of the biggest things about the new methadone is that it is 10 times stronger, which means if you are 100, say you're on 150 mils of methadone, when you take the new, the methadose, I'll say, um, you will only take 15 mils. This is really what Laura and I were worried about back then, how concentrated the methadose was going to be. Laura was especially concerned about people who use diverted methadone on the street. If nobody tells them about the change, they may drink too much and overdose. So Laura makes posters and she puts them up all across Vancouver, in doctor's offices, in pharmacies, and on the streets. She makes them bright, with pictures, so that people who have trouble reading will get the point. Like if you could send one message out, would it be, don't change the methadone? Would it be, give us more time? Or would it be, information about the product. I mean, what's your what's your best case scenario for this? Like if you could have your way. Um, all the above. How about can we have a decision whether we want to move to this new methadone? Um, and as well as give time for us to adjust to this and to get the information out. The worst thing about this is it just shows again that we have um, barely any input you're on methadone now, this is what you will be taking um, as of February 1st. We have no choice. Eventually, the conversation starts to wander. Laura tells me that back when she was wired, she'd steal to get by. She spent time in jail, and there's lots of stuff she did back then that she doesn't want to remember. But since getting on methadone, she'd been able to avoid dope sickness, and that let her come into her own as an activist. I have learned so much. My computer skills are awesome. I write proposals. I, um, I plan to have a full-time job out of it in the end. Um, I, have a loud I have a loud voice. When I talk, people listen. And so there's so many people who can't talk or won't. Um, 
and so that's why I do. You guys, I'm really sorry that this is happening. Don't, it's all good. Like, this, this has to be real, right? Like, whatever we're doing, it's just, this is what's happening in our life. After listening to that old tape with Laura, I asked her to do another interview. This one starts out very differently than the last one. Laura's cooking up heroin, and I'm having trouble setting up my gear. Yeah. You know what? God, it is quite late on me. I'm going to need your lighter. Yep, 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 yep. Here it comes. Sorry. Yep. No, it's okay. Do you want me to run some hot water so you can stick the... Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes that does the job for me. If it's already in the barrel, I just run it under the hot water, you yeah. know? Check one, two, three, four, five. Ow. <laughs> I think right, I might have to, to uh... Down a bit. Are you okay there? Everything's new? Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, Garth, say stuff. I'm saying stuff. Hi, Garth. Hi, Laura. Um, so I was looking at all the things I wrote for us, all the things you and me did together, all the meetings, all the emails, and we've just done a ton of stuff. And it's kind of like to describe that, I have to make us remember. And so, like, today I'm just going to ask you to help remember some stuff with me, and maybe you and me can, like bring it back, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, can you give me an average day, like what a day would have been like before the switch for you? So I would be up um, at 8 o'clock in the morning. I would, you know, do my thing, get up and go to my pharmacy, drink my methadone, and then come back. But when I woke up, I woke up not feeling like I needed to have methadone. If I didn't actually drink the drink, I wouldn't... I wouldn't um, know, I guess. What so I'm like trying a day to didn't have dope sickness in it? Yes, not at all. And I wasn't using heroin daily. And so what did that mean for your life? Like, what did you do during the day? Um, I came and volunteered here at Van Du, and I was fighting for people's rights that were on drugs. I, I felt like I'd gotten to where I wanted to be after being uh, a heroin user and methadone consumer for 20-some-odd years. I believed what I was told, that the medication was going to be the same, that it would be fine and I would be able to continue with the work and the life that I had. And I was so wrong. I didn't think, I never in my wildest dreams did I think it was going to be as bad as it was. Do you remember that first day that you went in to go take Methodos? Do you remember it, um, what it was like? I do because you know what? It just so happened that my methadone script was up February 1st. So I probably initially was like the first person in BC to have it. Well, it the first thing that bothered me is the taste and the consistency. It was like exactly like drinking cough, cherry cough syrup. The other methadone was like drinking orange tang with a little bit of a zip to it. Take us to the pharmacy that morning. So uh, I went into my pharmacy and I gave the prescription to my pharmacist. It was that day, I didn't feel really any difference. It was the middle of the night, I think February 3rd. Um, I woke up feeling like uh, my legs would were moving and couldn't sleep and I felt like twitches. So this is like, these are the classic symptoms of dope sickness and you might not have felt that for 
a long time, right? So you're in bed and your yeah. legs are twitching. And what, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, what the fuck? Like, excuse my language, but how, what, what, whoa, what's going on? I said to my partner, Martin, like, I am, I am dope sick. Like, I am, I'm dope sick. I, uh, Do you remember what Martin said? Um, you just, just, just relax, Laura. It's, it, you know, it's new. Maybe it's just part, you're thinking this or, and I was like, well, I'm going to be doing heroin. That means I'm going to be robbing jewelry stores. That means I'm going to be in jail. That means I'm going to remember the awful, awful things that I did. And this is not my decision. I didn't do this. I was trying so hard to keep my life together. And then somebody else decided for, my, for me what medication they were gonna give me and it was insufficient. By the 6th of February, I was really, my body really felt it. Like it was, it, it was bad, and I started to use, I started to use heroin right then, right away because I'm not I, I can't do withdrawal. It doesn't work for me. No doubt. I gotta figure this out, so I go to meet with Ohenya Socius, a physician and research scientist, and with Ryan McNeil, an assistant professor and Crackdown scientific advisor. Effectively, the the change happened beginning in February 1st, 2014, and we started work on it that week. You know, I remember that first interview, and all of a sudden we were struck by, hey, this doesn't have legs. It's not holding me like the old methadone did. And, you know, as we got a little bit further into the work, it was kind of a bit of a eureka moment of there's something really significant happening here that we need to understand. Ryan and his team talked with 34 methadone patients in the first few months after the switch. One indigenous woman told him, I was sweating hard, tossing and turning at nighttime. Methadose is crap. In 2015, Ryan's paper is published. Sharice is co-author. I remember thinking, okay, now this is a peer-reviewed study. Maybe it might convince the Ministry of Health. Maybe they'll give us the old methadone back. And so I emailed them Ryan's study. But the ministry didn't find it very compelling. They criticized it for having only 34 participants. In an emailed statement to me, they said, the Ministry of Health is aware of a very small number of reports of some patients having a wearing-off effect of methadose. But they added that, Methadose contains the same active ingredient as the previously compounded covered solution. Patients are getting the same drug, they wrote, and the same amount of the drug for their prescribed doses. In other words, no way. Well, what, what we did, we, we used uh, data from a large cohort of people who, who use drugs and are HIV positive uh, and, and are living with HIV. This is Ohenya Socius. As Ryan was working on his study, Ohenya started to follow it up with a much larger study. This one had over 300 participants. And we found like very interesting and concerning uh, findings. Particularly, we saw that before the policy changed, there was a, a, around 40% of people were uh, reported that they were uh, still using heroin. And after the policy changed, this, this increased to over uh, 50%. The striking finding is that it was like uh, almost immediately after, after the policy change. We can see that something happened. Ohenya wasn't the only academic who noticed this kind of spike. 
Alyssa Greer and Jane Buxton from the British Columbia Center for Disease Control surveyed 405 methadone patients. They were recruited from harm reduction sites across BC. Over half said they'd used opioids after the switch. I emailed this study to the ministry as well. They called this one interesting, but wrote that 400 respondents represent less than 3% of all patients using methadone. Apparently, they still weren't convinced. I also wanted to know what Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals had to say. On June 9th, 2014, I emailed them and a representative responded within just a few hours. She told me that there was a 1999 paper published by an addiction medical specialist named Mark Gorovich. According to Mallinckrodt, the paper showed that, quote, the observed patient intolerance to switching formulation appears not to have a pharmacodynamic basis. Appears not to have a pharmacodynamic basis. Pharmacodynamic just means the way that a drug affects the body. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. What did the Mallinckrodt representative mean? How could this not be about how methadose affects our bodies? There's effectively this debate circling in the literature around methadone formulation changes, and that's, are people experiencing change in tolerance due to a psychosocial factor? One thing I didn't know in 2014 that I know now is that academics know this shit happens. They call it change intolerance. That basically means that patients can end up getting sick when their methadone formulation gets changed, or they need to raise their doses, or they start taking illicit drugs again. Over 20 years, there's a lot of examples of these formulation changes having really serious public health outcomes. And during that time, social scientists have been debating whether these outcomes are caused by what they call psychosocial factors. So the mixture tastes different. They perceive it differently. And is that what's driving them to have worse outcomes following a formulation change? Or is it a pharmacodynamic issue? Is it something actually with the formulation itself and how it's metabolized? So is it all in our heads? Or is all in the juice? And we really don't have a definitive answer that it's not one or the other. That pharmacodynamic question hasn't been adequately addressed. And very particularly, there's one study that was kind of done that's been trotted out in a lot of the interactions that we've had with policymakers and other folks following the change uh, by Garovich out of New York in the late 1990s that, you know, has some limitations. This is the same paper that Mallinckrodt sent me, and it's not the only time it came up. People reference it a lot. I remember one time the paper came up at a meeting with the BC College of Pharmacists and the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Ministry of Health. It was basically used as proof that what we're experiencing couldn't actually be about the medicine itself. So now I wanted to know, can this paper actually tell us anything about what happened in BC? It's, it's a small study. It's only 18 people. What, the, what our finding uh, we, we draw from the study has to be taken into consideration of, like, we are just talking about 18, 18 patients. The, the other, the other, limit, the other uh, thing that I think is sometimes overlooked about, about this study is that this study looked at people who were already on methadose. In our case, in, in British Columbia, there so was it didn't even test the old versus the new methadose? Well, it didn't even look at that. No, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's a different question. That's what, that, that's <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, the more I learn about this, the whole mess, the more pissed off I feel. Yeah. 
So I'm looking at that paper now. And down at the bottom in the acknowledgement section, it says, this research was supported by a grant from Mallinckrodt Chemical Inc. This was the study that they were always throwing at me. I never thought that this was all in our heads. I never did. Too many people have told me the exact same story. I don't have a lab. I can't prove exactly what's going on. And I still don't know. But neither do they. So why won't the government just err on the side of caution and give us the old methadone back? So here we are in the middle of a damn overdose crisis. Thousands of people are dying. And we can't move the needle on what, frankly, should be for government the easiest, quickest win of the overdose crisis. But there's this much bigger question. It's why, why don't we accept the reporting of people who use drugs when they're saying, this isn't working for me and it's negatively impacting my life? And beyond that, why aren't we adequately involving people on methadone, people who use drugs, and all sorts of people with lived experience relevant to policy changes in the very thing that we're actually doing? That was an excerpt of Change and Tolerance, winner of the 2019 Radio Impact Award. It was produced by Sam Fenn and Garth Mullins, co-produced by Lisa Hale, Alexander Kim, and Ryan McNeil for the podcast Crackdown, with editorial support from Laura Shaver and Sharice Kiwatton. These are the demands from Crackdown's editorial board following their coverage of the switch to methadose. First, we demand access to the old methadone, immediately. And we demand choice. Suboxone, slow-release oral morphine, injectable dilaudid, prescription heroin, whatever. Give us what works. And so that this never happens again, we demand to have a say in policy decisions about our lives. Nothing about us without us. And we demand an apology from the Ministry of Health, the College of Pharmacists of BC, and from Mallinckrodt Pharmaceutical. And finally, we demand a formal investigation into why methadose failed. Unfortunately, not all those demands have been met. At our 2019 awards ceremony in Chicago, producer Sam Fenn had this to say. It feels very bittersweet to accept the impact award for this, I have to be honest. It is true that since we aired, thanks in large part to the work of drug user activists, the government of BC has quietly expanded access to life-saving medications. They have not acknowledged that the switch was destructive in any way. They have not apologized, and they continue to drag their feet. Um, And so the folks at Crackdown, including myself, are going to continue to fight until we have um, the acknowledgement, the apology, but more importantly, until all of our friends have medicine that could save their lives. That was Sam Fenn speaking at our award ceremony in Chicago in 2019. Though Garth couldn't attend the award ceremony, we spoke to him and Sam to ask them more about the making of this winning piece. We began by asking them about the two taglines of Crackdown, the drug war covered by drug users as war correspondents, and nothing about us without us. I think in Canada we have, uh, you know, we have a few journalists that, that do the drugs beat, and they do a pretty good job. You know, they'll they'll... They'll speak to activists and, and people in the community, 
but there's a whole world of conservative and right-leaning media in Canada, the majority, that take a very um, stigmatizing view of drug users. And so they'll call us, you know, zombies and scumbags and criminals. That, yeah, that attitude is pretty prevalent. Of course, there are lots of different shades of that. But they'll get a quote from us and kind of use it as a note of pathos or something. Like, oh, look at this poor wretch. Very rarely do you hear an opportunity where we really get to, you know, talk about policy in more detail or we get to see more of the humanity of the person who uses drugs. So we wanted more room for that. The way we choose our, we have an editorial board and the way we choose our stories is we have meetings and everybody on the editorial board uses drugs. And... I was a journalist, a documentary radio producer in Vancouver who had drug policy sort of as my major beat. And I, like a lot of journalists, uh, completely missed this story during 2014, 2015, 2016, and like was totally unaware of how important it is to understand what happened with the methadone switch if you want to understand drugs in Vancouver. And the the editorial board insisted that we do this episode. I mean, because they knew. We have a group of people, including Garth, who know this stuff inside and out because they have lived experience with it. And that has been sort of immeasurably helpful to the journalism that we do. Is there any disadvantage to being part of the community that you're covering? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of advantages. You have a different insight that you're getting the story out there, that you have more access and getting tape might be easier. Are there any disadvantages? Uh, yeah, the, the disadvantage is that you lose people. And uh, I've, I've gotten all through my life, people have been dying of drug overdoses. And I think I, you know, I think I counted about 50 and I, I stopped counting because it just becomes uh, horrifying after that. But when we were making this episode, uh, The Change in Tolerance, we lost Sharice Kiwatin. And she'd been on the editorial board, but she'd also been uh, a colleague activist of mine and a friend for about six years. And what what led to Sharice's death was the same thing we were covering. So it's like... I guess part of the difficulty of it is, is there's no boundaries. Like I can't, I can't clock out at the end of the day. Um, it kind of haunts you and, and it's like your work and your activism and your friendships and everything get all tangled up into the same thing. And at first I thought from a journalism perspective, maybe that's trouble. You know, maybe you're supposed to be objective and write sort of um, New York Timesy type stuff, but I've never been to journalism school. And in the end, I think this tangle of stuff becomes a feature, not a glitch. You know, it becomes something that actually, um, uh, it, it makes it stronger. And also drug users have, we all have really great bullshit detectors built in. Uh, and you have to, you kind of develop it as a survival skill. So if we're straying into bullshitting territory, everybody around us is going to call us on it really quick. So it means that you're not going to, hopefully just not going to get off track very much. Yeah, I think, I think being accountable to a community of people for whom your stories have real world impact, if anything, it pressures you to make your journalism better. You know, we should pick stories where collecting facts will materially benefit the health and, and the lives of, of a community of people. And I think really that all journalism should have that mandate. 
Yeah, you think about this episode, change in tolerance about methadone. You know, we've been, um, as part of the Drug Users Union, we've been uh, fighting for access to other types of methadone for years. And once we started to be able to work on this also as a story, instead of just a sort of vague lobbying and activist effort, we're starting to see cracks. So we might actually get a result that changes everyone's life. Like if you can get up in the morning and not be dope sick, not throwing up instead of having breakfast, that's a radically better life for thousands of people. And if we play a part in that by, by uh, making an episode and covering it like this, then um, so much the better. One of the great things about this piece is its use of sound and archival tape. And it just seems like you guys really love the medium of audio. Oh, yeah. We're the, we're the type of people who will unplug the fridge in someone's house because it's buzzing <laughs> in the background when we do an interview. Yeah. I, I guess it's I guess maybe radio sometimes is how I figure shit out. You know, uh, like when I when I first sensed something was going wrong with the methadone, it was around the same time I was feeling like there's the rumblings of a new overdose crisis coming. Like I just felt this stuff happening. You know, I've been on methadone myself for years and years and years. And so I I was really worried about where this could all lead for me, for everybody. And so I started running tape and writing and kind of pitching articles, but I couldn't ever land it. Like the story didn't get picked up. But when I started uh, talking to people, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And I guess, I guess I always think radio is the highest aspiration. So maybe I, I took my mic to make sure I get everyone's quotes right, but also to make sure you get a good sounding interview so that if you can find a place, you know, that if you can get it on a, a you know, a public broadcaster or a news package or something that, that you'll have the person's voice right. Yeah, I think documentary of all kinds and radio documentary in particular is a medium where we have allowed for experimentation. And I have been a total convert to this community-engaged journalism. And I think that people here in Canada and in the United States were hungry to listen to something that wasn't being mediated through a kind of a standard NPR voice or CBC voice. And, And there's nothing wrong with those voices. I like those voices. But if you want to tell a story about a particular community, partnering with people in that community to tell the story it's powerful it's it it creates access that you couldn't have otherwise it creates accountability that um that's actually good for your work and it gives a different kind of credibility to your project from the perspective of your listeners uh i'm glad that that documentary radio is a place that allows this kind of experimentation especially as the radio producing community tries to think of ways to become less you know male and white and cis and middle class this is an avenue um but you have to make sure people get paid you know you can't be the only one getting paid on the project yeah uh once you overcome the tradition of standing far back from a subject then it's really i think it's really liberating so like be political take a side um just be transparent about all that stuff and i think that's okay i think what people find troubling and what what really might be more problematic is things that pretend to be neutral and maybe aren't actually. You know, lots of things in Canada pretend to be neutral, but they're actually an, uh, sort of a radical argument for the status quo. 
tearing the wrapping off of that and letting it be seen, I think is really important. That was producer Sam Fenn and host Garth Mullins, whose work on episode two of the podcast Crackdown, called Change Intolerance, won them the 2019 Radio Impact Award. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast sharing the best documentaries of the year. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. Third Coast executive director is Shirley Alfaro. The artistic director is Maya Goldberg-Safer, and the program director is Emily Kennedy. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent nonprofit arts organization originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. You can hear winning pieces from all 19 years of our competition, as well as hundreds of outstanding audio documentaries from around the world at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Best of the Best.